everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode. It is Zoe, your host. We have a special episode for you this week. Some of you may know, if you've followed my story, that the birth of my first daughter, Jessie, who is nearly six, was a huge moment of transformation for me. She was born, but also so was I. It was such an empowering experience for me that I felt called in my purpose and my mission to work with mothers. So much so that I quit my corporate job of 12 years to start Motherkind, which I felt then was my purpose. And I feel that even more strongly today. And this is a really special episode because this week's guest was a hugely important part of that experience for me. Her name is Holly DeCruz. Many of you will know Holly or heard of Holly. She's a renowned birth coach. She's an author of Your Baby, Your Birth and Motherhood Your Way. She's also a podcaster and a mother of two boys. And in many ways, Holly and I have had parallel journeys of healing. So this isn't really an episode about birth, although of course we do touch on it and we do talk about it. This is actually an episode about purpose, about healing and becoming more and more comfortable with who we really are. And Holly is incredibly honest and vulnerable about her journey over the past few years and what it's meant for her and how she is different today. I think you are going to love this one. I know I did. I hope you really enjoy it. Here it is. Well, hello, my lovely. I'm so excited. I was just sharing with you. I can't believe you've not been on before because you were hugely influential in the start of Motherkind because you were my hypnobirthing teacher six years ago with Jessie. I'm sure we'll get to unpack it a bit, but that experience, you know, with you and the birth that I had just really birthed something in me, which became mother kind. So I'm sorry That's that you've covered it before, but we have, we have to trust that this is exactly the right time. Absolutely. I always think that. I like to trust that you're where you're meant to be when you're meant to be there. But it's lovely to be here. I love your podcast. So thank you. I was thinking about you and your books and just reading through your Instagram a bit this morning. And I see you actually really different than when we first met six years ago. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Six years is a long time, isn't it? It's a really long time. And I've been teaching hypnobirthing 10 years this year. Congratulations. Which feels a bit bananas because it kind of feels like it's my whole life, but also that it was a changing point in my life as well. So to have been doing it for 10 years feels like quite something. What have your two births taught you about yourself? That's a good question. It's interesting because I had two emergency C-sections or unplanned abdominal births. And I always say that if I hadn't had a C-section, I wouldn't have become a hypnobirthing teacher, which I think people find a bit peculiar 
because we have this image of hypnobirthing and that kind of natural birth world and it being really strongly attached to this idea of no pain relief at home in water with some kind of instrumental music on in the background and it couldn't have been further from what my birth was like and I did plan a home birth but actually for me Oscar who's my eldest who's nearly 11 his birth really showed me that you can adapt and that this motherhood journey wasn't going to be one size fits all it wasn't going to be predictable so that was a really valuable lesson to me and that actually the value is in having the tools and then using them depending on what's put in front of you so that for me was of real value. If I'd got my home water birth, I would not have changed jobs. I wouldn't have retrained to do hypnobirthing. So I'm very grateful for that. And then my second was eight years later. So I had a big age gap. And when I had Cosmo again, I was planning a home water birth. I was like, I just want my home birth. It felt so important to me. And I felt like, okay, now I really know my stuff. I had an independent midwife. I feel like I'm really well supported. And I felt like I was in charge of it. Then he had other ideas. And again, it was just, it was like bringing me back to earth. It was like someone saying, you don't get to decide everything. <laughs> you have to adapt. You have to listen. You have to respond to what's being put in front of you. His birth was a real recentering for me. And I think his birth was fundamental in who I'm becoming and what I'm moving away from. This idea of this very packaged, professional, successful, positive thing has become much more fluid, much more vulnerable, much more moving. I think when we try and package up motherhood too neatly, it's probably going to trip us up somewhere. So that was my little reminder not to let that happen. And what are you moving away from and what are you moving towards? I think I'm moving away from just a sense of control, just a sense of having to manage everything and be the best and show up all the time for other people but in doing that, abandon myself. I've always abandoned myself. Always. And not overtly. I've always seemed fine. But I've never really shown up for myself like I'm showing up for myself now. And what I'm realising is that is the biggest gift I can give to my kids. There is nothing more valuable than me showing up for myself. And I can't do that if I'm showing up for everyone else all the time. It's a tricky one to unlearn, isn't it? We're so conditioned for external validation. It's what makes us tick, what makes us feel loved and successful and of worth. I feel like I'm breaking up with that. I really relate. Really liberating. I hugely relate. I've mm. been on the same path, I guess. What does that look like day to day? You saying no more? Yeah, saying no more, listening to my body more, not feeling like I have to be so linear. You know, I've had this real journey with my cycle really understanding my cycle, really understanding who I am as a woman and leaning into that more, not feeling like I have to go in a straight line all the time. Realising that, say, you know what, I don't have the energy for that at the moment or I don't feel good when I'm in that situation, so I'm not going to go there. Putting boundaries in place, I guess, which again, we're terrible at, aren't we? <laughs> or I think a lot of us are. I think boundaries is a really difficult thing. Boundaries is fascinating because typically... Children are really boundaried. Yeah, but we try and stop them being boundaried. Exactly. So we learn when we were younger, okay, well, being boundaries is going to stop me getting that love and that validation that yeah. I need. Or it's being so, mean. Yeah, or it's being mean. Exactly. But like children, I've really noticed that with sharing. So uh -huh. when Cosmo, he doesn't want to share something. Now with Oscar, I'd have said, it's nice to share. You need to share your toys. Otherwise, I'm going to take it away. 
And with Cosmo, I'm really trying to say, you don't want to share that right now. That's that's okay. It feels hard to do that. But he's not being mean by not sharing something. He just wants it. And actually, I remember speaking to a really good friend of mine who's a child psychologist and same thing when Jessie was young. I was like, she's the only one that won't share the toy. And yeah. <laughs> it's really embarrassing. And she's like, so they don't understand yeah. the empathy part of your brain isn't coming online till ages six and seven. Yeah. So you can force them to share, but that's all it is. You're just forcing. And what beliefs are you kind of yeah. instilling through doing that? Or actually, trust me, when she gets to six and seven, she'll want to share because she's yeah. understanding about relationships and empathy. And yeah. But it's so complex, isn't it? Because it's hard to be so the one complex. in the group with the other mums. Because as a society, it's like these are the things that our children must do. They must say please yeah. and thank you at all times. They must yeah. not be in a bad mood. They must not be grumpy. They must not say no to Angry, us. sad. Exactly. Or need us even, you know? Sometimes I don't even think we let our children need us. This is mummy's evening. You need to go to bed. I've done that before. I've been like, you know, no, it's bedtime, you need to go. What if they need cuddling for an extra hour? It's really difficult, isn't it, to actually show up for them needing you when it's inconvenient for you. It's really difficult. And I don't feel like an expert in this at all. I'm very much at the beginning of a learning process, but it is enlightening on a daily basis. I feel like I'm learning more about parenting every day by doing less that isn't parenting. So I feel like I am putting more energy into being a parent, which again, I don't think is particularly seen in society. I think parenting is something we're just meant to fulfill in the background. I don't really think we see it as active work when it really is or it really needs to be. I think our society is really suffering from passive parenting. What are you doing then when you say I'm putting energy into being a parent? I'm really trying to learn from my children. I'm trying to listen to them without thinking I already know what they mean. So when they tell me something, and this is very different because I've got, you know, a nearly 11-year-old and a nearly three-year-old, so that comes in two very different forms. But my 11-year-old especially, he's very emotionally aware and articulate and quite mature. And, you know, sometimes he'll say something like, I don't like it when you're sarcastic with me. And... For me, it's very hard not to be defensive and say, I was just joking. You know, don't be like that. I was just joking. And actually, it takes away from him being hurt by it. So I'm really trying to not be so reactive and try and let them teach me a bit more, I guess. Because otherwise, how do we learn? An effective way for us to learn is by really immersing ourselves in the experience of listening, active listening, and making ourselves a bit more vulnerable. What if I'm wrong? I get it wrong all the time. I think we have this idea as parents, we have to appear right all the time. I think that's really problematic for our children because I know that I found it really difficult when I became an adult, realising that my parents weren't right about everything. I found it so shocking. I found it really, really quite life-altering. Like I'd been sold this thing that wasn't true. And actually, I feel like if I'd had more exposure to that early on, it would have been a much more gentle transition into adulthood. I think it's fascinating, isn't it? Because so many adults struggle with knowing who they really are. So many people say to me, you know, I'm in this life that doesn't feel like my own and I hate my job and actually my marriage isn't feeling great if I've got one. And 
And I think it's just so fascinating with what you're saying. And I've experienced this as well, because I think when we have that kind of, it's a societal message that we got actually, isn't it? Is that children are born and we need to teach them. And the way that we need to teach them is by kind of giving them all of these rules. And I think that absolutely plays into when we become adults, we mature and the rules aren't there anymore and there's no one telling us what to do. We never developed yeah, yeah. those core strengths of feeling heard and seen and empowered because that isn't yeah. what typically society has wanted from children. You know, I think we're still suffering exactly from the seen-not-heard seen, era. And then we're actually living as adults in a fear mindset all the time. Yeah, well, it goes back to what you look around. Exactly. And the pandemic has been really interesting for me. I found it a very transformative time. And I feel like that's quite a privilege to say that because, you know, I do feel like it's been a real time of observation for me. But you realise how attached everyone is to fear and what an intimate relationship people have with fear. It's almost their guiding light and it's with them all the time. It's their life force and it's impacting their every move, their thoughts, the way they talk, what they follow. And how can we ever make space for listening and learning when we're in a fear mindset? We can't because we're just trying to self-preserve and survive and be as safe as possible. There's no room for learning or growth when we're, we're in that fear mindset. It feels like there's a fear pandemic as well happening alongside a COVID pandemic. What are you no longer fearful of? Not being liked by, there's like five people whose opinion I really care about. And that's been so liberating. <laughs> oh, How's that different um, than when you started out? Because you were one of the early pioneers of our friend Instagram, the place <laughs> where about being liked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been a very gradual thing, I think. But I remember, you know, I've had a lot of therapy. I think therapy is just one of the most incredible life-changing things that you can do for yourself and your family. And a question my therapist always used to ask was, what is the fear? Anytime I was stuck with an avenue of thought, the question we'd come back to is, what is the fear? And I realised how I had kind of lived my life in fear of not being good enough, not being liked enough, not being palatable enough not being popular enough, not being good enough, you know, like morally good enough. And all that was doing is just taking me further and further away from myself. I'm flawed. I've got dark sides. Of course I have. Yeah, I was just putting them away. And that isn't being authentic. I just feel like I was doing myself a real disservice, which I'm trying to undo a bit, I guess. What do you do when those fears emerge? I just try and sit with them. I feel like I've got a lot more comfortable with unease. So if I feel like I've upset someone, my old self would have been straight in there, making up to someone, telling them why I'm good, <laughs> proving that, you know, I'm not a bad person. And actually now it's all right if they're a bit annoyed at me or upset with me or let down by me, disappointed in me. That's okay. It doesn't take as much away from me anymore because I know that I'm not all good. Whereas before, I really was stuck in this idea that I was a wholly good person. And I'm not. <laughs> I really relate. It feels like when your worth and your esteem and your actions are tied up with what other people think of you around you, mm -hmm. living on a roller coaster. Oh, it's, it's awful. Really, it takes so much energy. Yeah. 
And, you know, I was one of those people, I was super hyper vigilant. So, you know, I'd walk into a room and, uh, you know, this, my trauma work has really helped me unpack this, but I would walk into a room and I would zoom in on the person who was kind of looking like they didn't like me or, you know, and I would try and mm. it's so fascinating. Mm. I would really focus in on, yeah, just had this absolute insatiable need to be accepted and liked. Of course, that was because I didn't accept yeah. and like myself. So I had to outsource yeah. Yeah. that. But in outsourcing that, life was really hard. Because, yeah, yeah. because and you don't it, have anything left for yourself. No, and people forget to say thank you or sorry or because everyone's in their own lives. But I was so hooked into needing that. Yeah, and those transactions. Such a hard way. Yeah, those validating transactions. Yeah, I can really relate to that. But it's a habit, isn't it? And it's a habit we find ourselves stuck in without really knowing how we've got there. So we think it's normal because we've learned to live alongside it really quite easily. You know, there was nothing particularly bad about my life when I was doing that, other than that I just felt not quite at home with myself. But it wasn't manifesting in any bad way, really. You know, sometimes I think if things aren't really bad, we don't look to fix them because yeah. there's a comfort in it being familiar. And I think a lot of us are very comfortable with our fears, with our anxieties, with our need for external validation. It's a place of comfort. So why change it? Yeah. And also when you kind of put a nervous system lens on it, your system feels very at home in that slightly constant activation of stress. Yeah. Of worry it's of not actually stressed by it. <laughs> yeah. It's like this feels comfortable. Exactly. And actually, exactly. what was I wonder if you had this actually, but when I first started kind of doing this stuff and calming my nervous system and just sitting in peace and stillness, and it felt so alien and so hard. Yeah. And at the start, I would like try and seek out a bit of drama to reactivate yeah. myself. Yes. It felt so normal. Yeah, just self-sabotage. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that's really relatable. I bet that's relatable to lots of mums listening as well. I think we self-sabotage all the time. Because we need a distraction from ourselves. Buying stuff, drinking, social media, anything that gives us that dopamine hit and takes us away from the discomfort of maybe how uncomfortable we're feeling. One of the things that I really want to teach my girls, probably more than anything, and I think this is because of my background around Mm. addiction and my family, but more than anything, I just want them to be able to sit with uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, at one end, that's what going on Instagram too much is. And then the extreme end, that's what addiction is. You know, it's yeah. just an inability to sit with that. Yeah. Like and Jeff this morning was just sobbing. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. And I was just saying to myself in my head, like I was trying to regulate myself because I knew that would help regulate yeah. her. And then I'm just saying to myself, yeah. don't fix the feeling. I wanted to say, yeah, but you've mm. got art today and you love art. Yeah. And it'll be like, fun. <laughs> fun. And it's yeah. like, actually, no, just let her experience coming out of a feeling or maybe not coming out of a feeling or maybe Maybe, going to school all day feeling a bit rubbish I love that you said that around distracting ourselves from our feelings because that's what I had to learn because you know my mum was incredible in so many ways but she didn't know how to sit with her feelings so I didn't get to sit with mine it's just like I didn't get to learn French or language just a language I had to learn it's a skill set And actually, I remember as kids, you know, my parents were so loving and so generous and really attentive. But if we were upset, I could see or feel my parents didn't want us to be upset, not from a bad place. They really felt sad that we were upset. So instead of us learning that being upset is a normal part of the human condition, 
we learned that being upset was upsetting for other people. So then we have to find a way to move away from it rather than you're safe. Yeah, it's so... You're safe to be angry. You're safe to be sad. In an episode I was listening to of your podcast, you used the word alchemize. And I thought <laughs> that's such a good word for what active parenting is, I think. You know, alchemizing historic, problematic tendencies, I guess, to really heal and like heal the wound of generational trauma, I guess. But it feels like such a huge undertaking. Just a little while ago, you asked me how I do it daily or what it looks like daily. And I think that's what I would say. It's just trying to meet those opportunities daily. Not thinking I'm going to override my parenting style or I need to read parenting manuals to work out how to be a better parent. It's just showing up for my children as they are that day and being able to regulate and being able to hold space for them and be a safe space for them, however they are. Not needing anything from my children. They're not here to get it right for me. They're not here to make me happy. All of these lessons that have kind of come up along the way, which is so liberating. It is noticing that is such a practice for me every day. Like just noticing what is coming up for me with what they're doing. And then I just jot that down in my journal. On my phone, like, oh, I log that- it. Yeah, I log it. Like, isn't that mm. fascinating? Like, yeah. I just really noticed how I did it the other day. Like one of the things that I can do is superiority. If I feel uncertain in a situation, one of my coping behaviors is I try and make myself seem or knowledgeable or just kind of better than it's a really mm. horrible because it does not come across as nice mm. it's a really horrible thing that I do to make myself feel safe I'm still working on that feeling of feeling yeah. vulnerable particularly at the moment you know I've just moved in it's everyone's new and and I noticed I did it the other day in a really insidious way I'm sure that other people wouldn't have noticed but I did And yeah, I just wrote it down with really kind of myself. Like, isn't that fascinating? Like I'm still picking up that tool, still picking up that thing that I don't want to do that puts me apart from others to feel safe. Yeah, I just love it. (laughs) Because actually that coping mechanism has got you somewhere. You know, I think we're very quick to label these mechanisms we've developed as good or bad, but they've served a purpose, haven't they? Yeah. And they've taken us this far on the road and now maybe we can put it down and find something else or maybe we need to hang on to it for a bit longer. I do think sometimes when we talk about parenting especially or self-love or healing, we have this idea that there's an end goal. There's this prescriptive path to an end goal and one day you'll wake up and you'll just feel great <laughs> and you'll just feel at ease. I don't ever envisage that happening. I know that for the rest of my life, some days, will just be rubbish or really difficult or really challenging and some days will feel a lot easier than they would have done before you know it isn't the end result we're working towards it's this more moderated state of peace or a sense of being able to cope without as many coping mechanisms maybe the more that I kind of ponder this I totally agree with you there is no end point what I'm aiming for is just to feel okay with whatever's happening in Mm. any moment. Okay with the stress, okay with the meltdowns, okay with someone not liking me, okay with myself struggling with something, okay with arguing Mm. with God. Just being okay with it all. But that's different to being numb with it, isn't it? Very different. 
And I think a lot of us want to actually feel numbness when actually is being okay actually feeling a bit sad. Yeah, that's what I mean. I want to just be like, I am devastated. That's okay. That acceptance and that surrender, I think, is what brings that peace. All stress comes from resisting what is. I definitely know that. I've experienced that tons. So if I can stop resisting whatever's going on. Yeah, resistance is a really good word. Because we do, don't we? We (laughs) We resist so much. And I think we resist so much for ourselves. We resist being as fabulous as we can be. We resist giving ourselves more time and more love, more compassion, because we're just flogging ourselves all the time and holding ourselves up to other people's sense of worth or whatever, rather than trying to find it for ourselves. How is this changing? Because you, know, you said you, during your 10th year of being a hypnotherapy teacher, you were kind of an yeah. pioneer, I'd call you, on you know using yeah. social media to grow a community and I read that you said the other day you were definitely kind of addicted and to some extent to that success in music. Mm. Oh, validation. so much. <laughs> so much. How is it different now? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. When I had my first son and I was in a relationship that was complicated and didn't feel easy a lot of the time, I didn't feel particularly successful at home. I didn't feel like I was a very good mum. I didn't feel like I was a very good wife. I didn't feel like I was getting it right. So professionally, it was my opportunity to do that online, this new community, professionally as a hypnobirthing teacher. I really rate myself as a hypnobirthing teacher. I think I'm really good at my job. I rate you. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) But I know I'm a really good communicator and I know I'm really good at teaching in a way that is engaging and interesting. So that became my source of validation. It became my source of feeling great about myself. So actually what that meant is that I could park how inferior and useless I felt somewhere else and focus purely on getting this sense of praise and appreciation. You know, I was getting emails all the time from women, and I still do, saying, you changed my birth, you've changed my life. And that felt so good. So I was getting all of that sense of worth from other people and none of it from myself or from my family. And I just really felt like I'd abandoned part of my life because this need for validation had won out. When my marriage broke down, it was a real turning point of what I actually wanted from my life. Because I think when you're in something like that, you kind of just feel like you're juggling these plates and you're doing an all right job at it. 
And it's not until they all drop that you think, oh, right, <laughs> that's not sustainable. It just really made me reframe what I was giving my energy to. And I felt like the most important thing at that time was to help my son cope with his parents separating. It really became my primary focus. I felt it so strongly in my bones that my work was him. And it was a real catalyst for letting stuff go professionally. Because actually, I didn't want him growing up feeling like something was more important than him. Or that I was happier elsewhere. It was a real catalyst in paying attention to what mattered, I guess. That's the best way I can articulate it. Giving me goosebumps. Oh. <laughs> it was the biggest catalyst of my life. It was the best thing that's ever happened to me, strangely. I don't think it's strange. I think so many awakenings and transitions happen yeah. out of crisis and rock bottoms you know because you kind of throw your hands up in the air and you're like I this is my experience a bit you know okay I don't know I don't know what I'm doing surrendering is such an opportunity and actually making you sit in the driving seat it's like my life was going come on will you get in this car please <laughs> and I was like yeah I'm just got to get something from in here <laughs> the whole for the last 10 years instead of just getting in the car and driving you know like get on board with your own life if someone's listening and they're thinking, God, I don't know if I'm, am I in the driving seat? How does someone know whether they're being the passenger? What does it feel like? Oh, I think that's really hard to know. As you say, it can so often really take a crash to make you realise you haven't been paying attention to the road, you know? <laughs> Are you falling asleep at the wheel? It's that, oh God, I, you know, I haven't been paying attention at all. But you wouldn't know otherwise. It's funny, I used to be really worried about bad things happening to me. The biggest fear I had when my marriage broke down, or the biggest obstacle was shame. The thought of other people feeling sorry for me made my toes curl. I just hated the idea that anyone would think that I'd failed or messed up or that I was sad even. I hated people thinking I was sad or struggling or needed help. And I think when you are living your life like that all you're doing is creating layers to hide beneath so actually if you do want to work out if you're in the driving seat like you've got to unpack a bit like what am I putting on top of myself here what am I using to distract myself from the way I feel you know I say it all the time and you know when I write or talk that I do think therapy I feel like it should be essential <laughs> for everyone well, I do think it's essential for everyone, but I think it should be available to everyone. That's what I think. Because having someone impartial that has no bearing on your access to love, who can help you work these things out without you owing them anything or without you being able to get it wrong for them, is so valuable. And then maybe if we all did that a bit earlier, we wouldn't have to wait for these rock bottom transitions, you know. I think the pandemic was a kind of big awakening for many people. It is privileged to say that, you know, I didn't lose my job. I didn't lose my home. I didn't mm. have anyone, although my grandmother died. Yeah, that was really hard. But I think for me, you know, we did a big move. And I think it did give an opportunity to ask some of those questions. Like, where am I putting my energy? Yeah. There was so much space all of a sudden. 
and time in your home. You know, I think our home is a very telling place. When I was unhappy, I just tried to spend as much time as possible not in my home. (laughs) And yet here we all are, having spent a year and a half (laughs) unable to escape our homes. So it suddenly becomes very apparent whether that's a happy place for you or not, doesn't it? When you've got no choice but to be there, when you can't escape those feelings or the atmosphere or your relationships. How did your relationship with Simon change through the pandemic? Did it? Not really. I feel very lucky that I've got a very loving, strong relationship with someone who feels like home. I feel like it's just such a blessing. And I know that sounds really disgustingly corny, (laughs) but it's true. We feel so at home in each other's company. And that is so refreshing for me. I've never been in a relationship like it before. I've always sought out relationships that were a bit difficult. Always. So I realised that for me was a massive mechanism that I've really let go of. It's something that really was very prevalent in my life. Relationships that were hard work. So being for a prolonged period of time at home with someone where there isn't that kind of tension has been great. And we've done a house renovation. So that was kind of our lockdown project unintentionally. We bought our house on the day we went into lockdown. Oh my gosh. It's all a bit bonkers. So we kind of had that as a project. I mean, so it could have gone either way, couldn't it? <laughs> it's quite a stressful thing to be doing, but... It could have gone either way. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's- and what about co-parenting? Because I know that's mm. something that a lot of people ask you about. It is, yeah. So what have you learned about how to have a successful co-parenting relationship? Again, I've put all of that down to good therapy. My ex-husband and I had marriage counselling for about a year before we separated. And it's funny because I think when you separate at the end of marriage counselling, people think, well, that can't have been very good. (laughs) That didn't work out well, did it? And actually, it was the most wonderful thing we ever did for each other. It really helped us separate in a very loving, compassionate way, given that it's a separation. You know, that's not to say it wasn't difficult and stressful, but it really helped us deal with our own stuff with each other and be able to separate being attentive to our son. And I think what can happen a lot of the time, and I say this as a child of parents that separated, is that in the midst of a separation, what can happen is that it's basically just two egos at war who are trying to come out with the least collateral damage. And actually, the collateral damage is the child so often, whose feelings get overlooked or not held or, you know, anyone who is separated with children, they just want their kids to be okay. But the reality is that kids are not going to be okay for a while. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be prepared for the reality that your child is not going to be okay with you separating. You cannot buy them happiness. You cannot cheer them up. You cannot try and distract them from the pain of their world splitting in half, because that is what it is. It's horrible. And unless you have the capacity, the emotional capacity to face that reality, you are not going to be able to nurture your child through the catastrophic feeling for them of their parents separating. It's earth shattering. And how on earth can you show up for that landscape when you've got so many unresolved emotions about it yourself? 
So you have to have a separate place for your feelings in order to be able to show up and hold your kid and provide safety and security and consistency. I think it's very easy when you split up to go off in two directions where you're both trying to prove the point that you're the best parent. Like, who benefits from that? No one, other than the person that thinks they're the best parent. It's certainly not the kid. Your child needs to feel 100% safe. And in our commitment of co-parenting, it was that our son's feelings had to come first all the time. We always act in the best interest of him, even if it upsets one of us. And in order to do that, it's about having boundaries, honesty, love and compassion for the other parent. We never badmouth each other. We always speak kindly about the other parent. And we talk to each other a lot. If Oscar asks us for something, we check in with what the other parent thinks. He has a very similar home at both houses, even though practically they're very different. Emotionally, I feel like he has the same sense of security. That is my proudest achievement. That's an incredible achievement. Yeah, I'm really proud of that because it really hasn't been easy. It's not easy. It's still not easy. You know, I get so annoyed sometimes as my ex-husband probably does get annoyed with each other but we can say we're annoyed with each other without it going through Oscar that is really valuable so you know I'm very grateful to him that he is as committed to that as I am because lots of people aren't you must get this question all the time you know you're co-parenting with someone who might have a totally different philosophy about feelings and emotional health how does someone navigate that oh well, we have that as well on the other side. Oh, okay, because you're also a stepmother. Yeah, and Simon's got an ex-partner. You just see who the collateral damage is, and it's really sad. It's really sad. But the only people that can change it are those two co-parents. And unless you are both prepared to do that, it's a really difficult predicament to be in. I think if you are a parent who wants to work on that and the other parent doesn't, the best you can do is find help in navigating what that road looks like, I guess. And if that's having therapy or parental kind of therapy so that your child gets as least damage as possible, then maybe that's the way. I think it's really sad because it can be done, just hard. And again, I think because we're caught up in a society that is all about doing and attainment sometimes we really overlook the value of this invisible work we can do as parents and how life-changing it can be for our kids I think it's overlooked well it doesn't come with any validation no no one sees you doing it I think it's interesting when I get questions on Instagram I do think people assume that I've got lucky with something so how you know you got really lucky with your co-parenting relationship it's like that is not luck It's been horrendous and it's been really gruelling and upsetting and difficult, but it's worth it. But you're never going to just get lucky with that stuff. It requires work. Same as self-healing or self-growth. You know, how are you such a positive person? It's like, that's just rubbish. It's just, that's nonsense. I'm not a positive person. I'm just open to learning more about myself in order to enable me to cope better with life. That's what you're seeing. I don't just wake up in the morning and think, oh, I'm going to have a great day. (laughs) I wish it was that simple. (laughs) 
Exactly. Exactly. I think that was like self-help in the 80s, wasn't it? So these like words to yourself. And, you know, I'm all for an affirmation, but you've got to do stuff alongside it. Yeah, affirmations are amazing and they have their place, but, you know, there's something to grab in a moment. They're not going to do your deep healing work. No, it's definitely multi-hyphenated work, isn't it? What's next for you? You've been kind of teasing us that you're doing... (laughs) Yeah, I have. And, oh, you know what? It's funny because in times gone by, I would have been up all night trying to get things ready and and I'm just like, it happens when it happens. It's not primary focus, it's secondary. So I am essentially building a bit of a platform for growing people. So women in their childbearing years, in pregnancy, in birth, and in that space beyond to learn about themselves. It will still be about hypnobirthing, so there'll still be a big kind of focus on that. But also I want to break down topics for people to learn about more easily. So something I talk about a lot on my platform is attachment. I think attachment forms the basis of all our learning about ourselves. I really do. And it feels like such a big topic, doesn't it? And it's something I could talk about for days because I think it's so fascinating. But I would really like to make these topics that affect motherhood more accessible to people. So it's going to be a bit of a learning platform from pregnancy, birth and then beyond that people can access as they feel called to. You know, I don't want it to feel prescriptive. I don't want it to feel, now you need to learn about this. But if you're someone that's saying, well, what is attachment? How do I learn about it? How do I get better at it? I want to have a a resource for that. It's kind of a learning resource for... Very needed. I think so. And I feel really passionately about it. When I talk about these topics, I really feel like I'm doing something valuable. And it's a lovely way to connect with people because it's meaningful. It's a, and it's that same feeling that I get from teaching hypnobirthing. I know that a woman's birth experience really has the power to transform her life. I think that's so often overlooked because we think, oh, well, one way or another, the baby will come out. But actually, if we do pay attention to how that's going to happen and put effort into creating a better experience... It can be completely transformative, completely healing, completely cathartic and really push you into that, wow, look at my capabilities. I think that's what birth does for a lot of women. It makes them realise how powerful they are. And that's what it did for me, without a doubt. Yeah. Mother kind wouldn't exist. It yeah. would not exist had I not done the prep that I did when I was pregnant. That's incredible. It's like that stepping stone into your own power, isn't it? And one of the lines I use on the website is that, I really want to help you get home to yourself. You know, that journey back to who you were always meant to be that hasn't gone anywhere. You've just been distracted. It's a real sense of learning for your own benefit. Yeah, and then the gift of just kind of, you know, this is, I guess, at the core of mother kind as well. It's just the gift of, you know, awakened and empowered mothers on society. And it's just unbelievable. It doesn't get bigger. No. I think it's one of the biggest tragedies in our society is how overlooked the impact of the mother is or the parent, not necessarily just the mother, but we have more power to change the world than anyone. Our maternal energy can have more of an impact on the world. I truly, truly believe that than anything else that is out there. I think it is mind-blowing how much 
impact we can have when we pay attention. I totally agree. And it's exciting, isn't it? Sometimes I look at my kids and I think, I'm so excited for you because I'm not going to hold you back. I'm just going to be here wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever obstacles you come up against, you're going to be equipped and you're going to be loved and you're going to feel safe. And then you can do anything. You know, I want to do another episode with you on education because oh. <laughs> we didn't get to do That's my view, right? Because mm. what I think and what I've come to learn from, you know, the amazing people that I've spoken to and all mm. the stuff that I've done is that if someone feels secure and loved, you know, and has that secure attachment, yeah. they can do anything. So I, and I know you're the same, I put that above former education because I know Jessie can go to uni when she's 50. Maybe that'll be more beneficial than going when she's 18. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows, right? (laughs) But I know that if you feel like you are worthy and you are enough, Mm. you are loved and you can Mm -hmm. fail and you'll still be loved, the rest of life, I really believe this, will sort itself out. 100%. Couldn't agree with you more. And so for us in our house... You know, I had to write another letter this week about why we've not done the homework, you know, because I was connecting with my children. <laughs> yeah. Not. I was mothering as parenting. I was busy with, you know, making yeah. sure that we all felt self and held and connected yeah. and joy and fun. And, but it's very difficult to not be sucked in to thinking you're doing something wrong. And how sad that actually in showing up for our kids, we're told off. You know, you only have to look at like this idea about sleep and, you know, making a rod for your own back, which is just the biggest load of crap that new mums hear. It just exasperates me so much. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you make that baby needy. They're a baby. <laughs> They're really needy. They're meant to be needy. <laughs> <laughs> Their survival depends on them being needy. It is a whole other conversation, but this narrative that we have that mothering is somehow bad for our kids is bonkers. And it does create this community of mothers who just aren't brave enough to show up and feel like they're better off doing something else. Gabor Mate, and I know that you love him too, Mm. he said that to me. He said, you know, you ask any mother who's done sleep training, and a lot of people do it because they've Mm -hmm. been told, you know, by the experts who don't understand attachment, by the way. He said, you ask them if it felt good. Mm. And he said, every single one of them will say, and I've asked, you know, I've asked friends about this and you know, the kind of one night that I tried it, it felt like my insides were being ripped out. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. Because it's not natural. Yeah. But we're told that it's right by people that apparently know more than us. Like no one knows more than you as a mother. No one knows how to better show up for your kid than you. And this idea that someone could override that is a huge problem. You know, when I wrote my book, Motherhood Your Way, which is all about how to worry less and enjoy more in your baby's first year, I really didn't want it to feel like a parenting book. All I wanted to do is constantly reiterate that you know better and that I'm not here to tell you anything in terms of what you should be doing. I'm here to help you listen to yourself because that's what we should be doing for mums, not telling them what to do. It gets very complex though because I'm sure you have this. A lot of the mums will say, well, I don't feel like I can hear myself. I don't yeah. have I don't have instinct. instinct. I remember feeling the same way, not not actually after Jesse, but, you know, in my 20s, I don't have any wisdom. 
that's because it was just all drowned out because yeah. I was avoiding myself and numbing myself yeah. by drinking and shopping and overworking. And yeah. of course I couldn't hear myself. It was actually meditation. Yeah. When I started a meditation practice, I was like, ah, this is what everyone's talking <laughs> there about. There she is. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and I could access some of that. Sometimes it's triggering for people. And also people think they're doing something wrong. Yeah. And I think that's why this kind of healing work for mothers has to be kind of self-sought almost and you have to be ready to step on this journey home to yourself because if people are just telling you to do it the intention isn't there and you're just going to find reasons why you shouldn't be doing it you're going to feel like you're being told off when I started therapy I felt like my therapist was just having a go at me she wasn't doing that at all but everything she was saying I found so triggering and I just wanted to defend myself and in defending myself all I was doing was putting up barriers to the work I'm going to spend this time telling you why I'm good enough (laughs) rather than being open to the ways I could heal or grow or learn more and again it goes back to being in a fear mindset we do get triggered very easily and I think we often mistake discomfort for being triggered because we're so unfamiliar with feelings of discomfort instead we feel like we're being attacked being triggered is from a healing perspective a great thing because it's bringing up a strong reaction in you and I always say if it's a really strong reaction it tends to come from early years from our own early years or there's something deeper in there you know I often say like my triggers are my sort of roadmap in a way to what you're looking at next yeah because if I'm having a really strong reaction to something and I'm really defended that's because it's a wound I would call it but I think yeah yeah, I think in this culture we've kind of got this idea now particularly everyone putting trigger warnings over all their posts and things like that that being triggered is bad I don't think it's bad at all it's uncomfortable of course yeah and it's down to you to gauge whether you're able to navigate that exactly if it's too much that's okay that's okay don't read the post don't watch that show don't listen to that podcast don't nothing wrong with that but I think there's this idea that I don't know I don't maybe I'm being too linear about it there's this kind of idea that we should just float through life and not be triggered and it's the fault of the person that triggered us I don't dilute everything yeah but I think social media has a big part in that because social media is about being as palatable as possible to appeal to as many people as possible the goal is just not to upset anyone and what does that do? Nothing. Nothing of any value anyway. That's easier said than done, isn't it? I think also we have to normalise not being ready to change or grow. It's okay if you're not ready, because I wouldn't have been ready to do this 10 years ago. Whereas I think because we have social media, we have this idea that we should all be at a certain point and doing the same work. Everyone's on a unique journey. And if you're feeling like, you know, this is too painful for me right now, I'm not ready for this. I don't have the resources or the support to do this work at the moment. I do think there's a lot to be said for normalising waiting. Yeah. And just as I said, you know, right at the start, just normalising and being surrendered to exactly where you are. Mm. It's almost like, you know, when you plant a seed and you want it to grow quicker, Mm. you know, pull it out, it just dies. It's like it's too much too Too soon. Too much too soon. And actually it can then turn into a very negative experience. You know, I know people that have gone to therapy when they weren't really ready or aware of what they were even going for. And it was just too much. And then actually they've written off therapy as not being for them, which is a shame 
but it's understandable. If you're constantly noticing you're being called back to yourself or you're noticing yourself getting distracted or noticing yourself fall into a habit that maybe you're not so fond of, that could be a personal habit or a parental habit. You know, maybe they're little signposts that you could be moving towards readiness. Yeah, I think so too. I think as well, it's like when you're getting kind of fed up with your own bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And you can smell it. So you are doing that shit again. I still feel like this today. You know, I want more love. I want more connection. I want more peace. And so Mm. when I'm doing that stuff, I'm like, ah, it's like there's a separation between that kind of defended part of me and the part of me that wants the ease and the peace. And that's my forever part, I think. I think you have to get to that point where you're fed up with yourself a bit. (laughs) Yeah. And you want to do something differently. Yeah. And are prepared to. And are prepared for the discomfort of doing things differently. It's not necessarily going to feel easy. No, it doesn't. Oh my gosh, I want you back on. I want to talk like this for about another 10 hours. But I always definitely do an education one. Let's do an education one because I think I'm tracking a couple of years behind you and how much research, but I'm starting to become very, Mm. very interested in it. It is fascinating. Well, you have to talk about it because I looked around to Steiner, but I didn't feel like it was for us. So let's do an episode yeah, on that. Let's. But I have to ask you the final question, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that gift be and why? I think this is such a lovely question. I love it that your podcast is a collection of gifts to mothers. My gift to mothers would be a deep belief that the shame you're carrying doesn't belong to you. I know that feels a bit off-piste from what we've been talking about, but I think a lot of our limiting behaviours are related to shame or feelings of not being good enough. That shame doesn't belong to you. You've picked it up along the way before you're even aware of what shame was and you can be free of it. And even if you're not ready to be free of it yet, knowing that you can be is worth holding on to. That is what I would like all mothers to know. That's beautiful. It gave me goosebumps again. Twice. Twice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. It's been a joy. And let's do an education one as well. Yeah, that would be great. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.